Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and of course streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. During his term as president, a petition circulated calling for the removal of Donald Trump due to serious mental illness. Trump remained until the next election, of course, in spite of the signatures of thousands of mental health professionals, but he never really went away, and neither did the widely held opinion that the man is not of sound mind. We'll never get an actual diagnosis, but my guest today offers the next best thing, a seriously well-imagined and darkly funny novel about a psychiatrist who is coerced into treating a racist, cruel, and self-pitying president. Constantly humiliated and forced to conduct their sessions in a Baroque fortress, the psychiatrist nevertheless takes his work seriously. Doctor and patient even develop a kind of relationship that offers us insight inside the mind of not only our narcissistic president, but the therapist himself, until the commander-in-chief mysteriously dies on the consulting room couch and the psychiatrist is forced to go on the run. Talking with me via telephone today is Dr. Peter D. Kramer. He's the Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Brown University. He's the author of eight books, including the blockbuster Listening to Prozac. Today we'll be talking about his latest novel, Death of the Great Man. Dr. Peter Kramer, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. So talk about your initial motivations for writing the book, which I imagine evolved over time. Were you setting out to understand or explain Donald Trump or to create a kind of thought experiment, imagining what it might like to be his therapist. How did the project begin and progress? So I thought when Trump was elected, actually the thought came to me maybe a month or two later, but before he took office, that his term would be the crisis of our time. And I imagined that there would be, you know, a flowering of art, of stage plays, movies, opera, uh, you name it, uh, as there was about the Vietnam War. Uh, and I thought that my little contribution would be to think like a psychiatrist. I was a practicing outpatient psychiatrist uh, and to kind of give that mosaic tile, you know, for the whole picture, my piece of it. Uh, and I had a fairly good idea of the book from the start, but of course, I didn't know what living under Trump would be like. So the book, yes, developed. And and very largely, I think it's an expression of my sense of oppression during the, the Trump years. Uh, so that's one way of, of thinking about it. I think as it developed, that side, the psychiatry side became very large. And I think some of the early readers have said that what they liked most about the book wasn't so much the portrait of a uh, toxic populist, but the uh, insight into how therapy works. I think I think that's very insightful because I found that absolutely fascinating. It's very rare that we get a glimpse inside the mind of a therapist. And I have to say a very, very honest glimpse. You were very candid. The book makes it very clear that a psychiatrist's role is never to judge or 
or assume, but to inquire. I imagine you've had your share of unlikable patients, but how difficult is it to hold your emotions in check when dealing with a person who has enormous power and uses it against people? It's hard. I think it's harder in civilian life. You know, I think people who are unlikable at a, you know, an intimate encounter or a cocktail party, whatever, uh, dinner are, are much more likable if they're sitting in the office trying to get better or hoping for some outcome. In this case, uh, the great man, as he's called in the book, um, is interested in sleeping better. He has insomnia and the pretext for the therapy is, is helping him sleep. He's outraged that given all the good he does in the world, he uh, <laughs> is unable to sleep. Um, but I, I think it is difficult. I mean, I certainly have worked in prisons a little bit. Um, I've had patients who were convicted of crimes and some who were abusive in family and so on. I think every therapist has had that experience. And I think it is difficult. But you are always looking for, you know, the profound human side of people. You're looking for likable aspects, you're looking for little efforts, little breakthroughs. And of course, uh, the therapist in the book, Dr. Henry Farber, is that way in the extreme. I mean, he's really a Pollyanna or as he styles himself, a Kantian. I mean, he really, uh, you know, tries to be truthful and uh, direct all the time and whatever awful things his patient does, he's devoted to the therapy. You create an entire world around the president, who, of course, you call the great man, security guards, political operatives, an entire Baroque fortress. Did you do much actual research into your surroundings uh, of a president or pretty much rely on your imagination? All imagination. I, you know, I thought there were other people who were good at political science or history that my contribution was being a doctor writer, you know, that I had the doctor side and the writer side. And I, uh, you know, I made my uh, therapist both a specialist in sleep early in his career and later a specialist in paranoia. And, you know, the uh, great man thinks that he's under attack, that there are citizen militias uh, coming after him. And uh, we don't know whether that's so or not. You know, the therapist is just dealing uh, with what his patient says. Back in 1973, a number of psychiatrists gave their public opinions of Barry Goldwater, one saying, I believe Goldwater has the same pathological makeup as Hitler, Castro, Stalin, and other known schizophrenic yeah. leaders. This resulted in the famous Goldwater rule in which the American Psychiatric Association said it was unethical for a psychiatrist to offer his professional opinion unless he or she conducted an examination. Um, was the book kind of a backdoor solution to the Goldwater rule? It, it was very much playing off the Goldwater rule. I think that the Goldwater rule greatest benefit is that it protects the profession from itself. I think without it, uh, psychiatrists would be diagnosing Trump and Biden. You know, there would be people with different political views who would have all kinds of extreme. I mean, not to mischaracterize the field. I think most psychiatrists are extremely sober and responsible, but, um, you know, I think the the 
the rule protect the profession from itself. On the other hand, I actually have an article out in DAT, which is sort of the health and health policy spinoff of the Boston Globe, just lately saying, you know, to the extent that the public record allows psychiatrists to think they can diagnose uh, public figures, couldn't AI and bots do it? <laughs> you know, aren't they really what's good at going through uh, texts and saying what correlates with what? Uh, and I think the book plays off the Goldwater rule in this sense that Henry Farber's lawyer says to him, look, withhold the diagnosis. The bullet wants a diagnosis. Tell it. And Farber is writing to his lawyer. The lawyer is turning some of the content into blog content to kind of create a public sympathy with this doctor in a uh, political situation where the law maybe can't be relied on. And uh, he so the lawyer says, you know, don't tell us the diagnosis off the start because people are going to want to read ahead and find the diagnosis. Well, we never quite reach the diagnosis because Farber is one of these careful, empathetic types who doesn't rely on broad brush diagnosis. And what he's giving us is more of the minute by minute intimate experience of sitting with a person, you know, without regard to category. So, yeah, I mean, I think the book is. is comic to a large extent. I mean, there are awful things happen in it, but it's meant to be comic. And part of the comedy comes out of uh, Farber's absolute dedication to this empathetic method. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about a satirical new novel in which a well-meaning psychiatrist is coerced into treating a paranoid, narcissistic president until he drops dead on the psychiatrist's couch. My guest is Dr. Peter D. Kramer. His new book is called Death of the Great Man. So to pick up on what we talked about just a second ago, the only person I've ever interviewed who was actually in close proximity to Donald Trump was forming, former acting FBI director Andrew McCabe. Summoned to the White House, he was ordered to sit in a tiny chair in front of the president's enormous desk. Your Dr. Henry Farber, too, was ordered um, into physically subservient positions. How did those details come to you? So that is funny. I mean, because I did not know that. And it certainly is a feature of the book that the great man keeps putting Farber into kind of comical, humiliating chairs or, or, or places to sit. Uh, you know, it, it just was my notion that this kind of guy who is egotistical in this way is going to be out to subtly humiliate everyone in, you know, in every fashion. Uh, there is a reference to uh, something that went on hundreds of years ago uh, you know, there was a period in which um, people who were very wealthy would hire uh, musicians or chess players to sit outside their room. And if they had insomnia at night outside the bedroom, they could call in the musician or chess player and uh, uh, pass uh, the time during the night. And um, that's how we have the Goldberg variations box. Goldberg variations were composed uh, for that circumstance to, uh, for, uh, uh, one of these musicians who sat outside the room to, uh, play for a wealthy client. And, uh, that essentially at a certain point becomes Farber's position with regard to, uh, 
the great man. He's on call right outside the room for instant therapy for insomnia. <laughs> I have no idea if this is true, but it certainly rings true. The great man never calls people by their right names, but demeaning terms he makes up for them. What does this signify by about a person? Or, or should I ask, how does it make them feel better about themselves? I think partly others don't really exist for them except through their functions. So they have no impetus to learn the person's name. You know, they, they only know the person as he relates to them. And then in the case of uh, Farber with the great man, there's some uh, implicit anti-Semitism, which is the category that uh, uh, the great man puts Farber in as Jew. So he calls him, you know, Einstein or Goldberg or whatever Jewish name uh, comes to mind. And that is sort of a running uh, I have to in the say, book. It's a, it is. I'm a Jewish person. It was very funny. <laughs> it was a very funny part of the book. Um, throughout the book, you're very conscious of expressing other people's attitudes toward the great man, how he has harmed them and how he harmed the country. How important was it to you to present the president that you call the great man as not just a deranged personality, but a person who did very, very real harm? I, I think it's extremely important. You know, I've said that I dealt with people in, in prisons. And, you know, the question is, what what does it mean? If something someone's done something terrible and harmful, what would it mean for the patient to become self-aware? So that is the tension through the book. You know, Farber is wondering how much reality the great man can bear if it starts, uh, you know, he starts being exposed to it. But in addition, because Farber has this entirely empathetic view, I had to create external characters to teach us what the great man has actually done. So Farber spends a lot of time in dialogue with his late wife, Miriam, and Miriam did follow politics and she was aware of history and she's able to say, you know, had said when she was alive, uh, you know, informed her husband about all sorts of things the great man had done. So through those memories, and also through uh, the great man's uh, wife, sort of the implicit Melania figure, who is very different from Melania. Through that character, uh, we, you know, do learn some of the politics. And uh, one of the characters says that this is effectively a thanatocracy, that the great man hasn't seen a form of destructiveness or death that he doesn't like or favor, so that, you know, he's in favor of, uh, ignoring tr uh, climate change and having cities uh, drown, and he's uh, in favor of guns, and he's in favor of denying abortions so that people, uh, you know, die through uh, home abortions and so on. So that there's this series of charges against the great man that come to us outside the therapy. May I ask you why you chose to make Farber a widower and why you chose to present his wife as deceased? So I think um, lots of contemporary uh, movies, television shows, and books have that uh, trope. And I think it's convenient, you know, to the writer because you can present 
marital issues in real time through memory. And here we have this doctor who's extracted from his community. He's uh, very much a uh, resident of Providence, Rhode Island, you know, well-known in a small city. He's taken out of there to the uh, fortress where the great man is. And I think that would be very hard just to extract him if he had a wife living in the home. You know, we'd there'd be much more fuss about how he disappeared and so on. Uh, but I think in addition to have him in the fortress, but have some of these issues uh, current so that they're not told in the past tense, you know, that's sort of built into the setup. So some of it is writerly convenient. Some of it is that it makes characters sympathetic, of course, to have them uh, have sustained a loss that they're dealing with. And I think a lot of it was to contrast the way that um, Farber tries to deal honestly with his marriage to understand ways in which he was not a perfect husband uh, and the uh, great man's unwillingness to accept any blame for anything. So that we have sort of two therapies going on at once. Farber uh, with his uh, monumental narcissist and Farber with himself as sort of the polar opposite. Hmm. You, you mentioned community. Um, so I want to say that you presented Providence as a very real and inviting city, almost a small town rather than a city. And your main characters place in it not as a noted psychiatrist, but as almost a local doc. Uh, so can you explain that choice? Did it help ground the narrative, which is otherwise deeply imagined? Yes, I, but I think partly the book is a little dystopian that this is a disastrous second term for the great man. And we feel it through the day to day life in Providence, you know, which has really been blighted by an economic depression. Um, and partly, I think, you know, I felt that way. I, like Henry Farber, I had a book that was very popular that I wrote, you know, early in my career as a doctor. And yet, I think in Providence, people saw me as just their doctor. And an enormous part of the town, I think, you know, whether they were seeing me currently or not, sort of thought of me as their doctor. And when they came in, they expected and got attention for their uh, very local problem. And I, you, you know, Farber is sort of an idealized version of that kind of psychiatrist. But it was the kind of doctor I... Uh, wanted to be as well. I just wanted to, uh, you know, be of use for people in a community. And I enjoyed the overlap, you know, where people saw you in the supermarket or the uh, sauna <laughs> at the gym or and where, you know, you knew about one family and their interactions with another family. So the therapy created a whole, you know, patchwork built p pattern of relationships as you got to know the the city. You describe a writing technique that your main character uses, one that you call imaginative translation, as I understand it, using real characters and real people while using, uh, while working very, very hard to disguise their identities. Talk about why that's a useful tool for you and how it came to play in writing this book. So, I, you know, I always study creative writing, fictional writing. I always tried to be a storyteller, but my early books were built around case vignettes, actual things that happened to patients. And so I had to change their profession or the uh, decade in which events took place or the, the you know, constellation of their family. 
Uh, and I got used to that sort of translation. And I found myself sometimes sitting with people or with patients thinking, I wrote about this, you know, how would I convey what's going on without actually uh, using the salient details, which are ordinarily so important in uh, storytelling. And I built that into the book in a deep way because uh, Farber is so used to that form of construction that in order to write this material fast and get it out to his lawyer, he relies on his old techniques. And he, uh, you know, Trump is a golfer, and we don't know what the translation was, but the great man is made out of the skier. Uh, and so that everything in the book is a little altered. And part of the function of that is to make the book about truth-telling. You know, I think we live in an era where politicians lie shamelessly. You know, we almost expect everything that Trump said to be a lie. And the same is, uh, or something similar is true of the great man. And we're contrasting the uh, psychotherapist's use of uh, alterations in a case vignette where he's trying to get at the truth of matters, deep truth, without saying the, you know, inch by inch truth. And, uh, you know, the method of the lie in politics where you get lots of details right, but the, you know, the thing you're saying is absolutely wrong. And that's played out throughout the book. So the rug is pulled out from under the reader a number of times where something that we think is the case, you know, maybe isn't the case because somebody has been lying a little. So there's a whole kind of musical use of uh, fiction techniques and lying that play off each other. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about a funny and frightening new novel in which a psychiatrist is ensnared into treating a bloated and paranoid president. My guest is noted psychiatrist Peter D. Kramer. His new book is Death of the Great Man. Dr. Kramer, at one point in the book, Dr. Henry Farber's daughter Nina says, Dad, you make everyone a patient. Even the great man doesn't want to be analyzed. All he wants is some help in falling asleep. And yet, Henry Farber treats him. So how tough is it for a psychotherapist to forgo the techniques of their craft outside the treatment space? You know, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, and uh, luckily we're not interviewing my kids. I think that some of what you learn uh, in terms of analyzing motivation, you just kind of take to be the case and you bring it with you uh, everywhere. And I think Farber tries to make the case that this isn't necessarily so bad a thing. He asks about his uh, lawyer, who's an old friend of his, uh, how that lawyer's uh, child sees him. You know, if he is very good at argumentation and very good at making clear cases uh, sharply and uh, you know, is that a bad way to be a parent or is that just, you know, bringing the benefits of your profession into your private life? So, I mean, the book plays with that a little bit. I, I do think that sadly, you know, some of the upside of being a therapist escapes us in private life, you know, so that where we would be very patient with someone doing outrageous things in the office, you know, we might be impatient outside of the office. So I don't think we bring all of it with us. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you to give us a diagnosis on Donald Trump, but at one point in the book, there's a terrific riff on his skill as a liar, which in his case 
you call an ego strength, an inner resource. Most of us, your Dr. Farber included, flinch when we tell a lie. We feel unsettled. The great man thrives on lies. Why? What makes him immune to guilt? Oh, I don't know that we get to know that exactly, but I do think we see that he's a virtuoso, you know, that he can use lying to make other people uncomfortable, where it's clear that he's lying, but they can't object to it. He uses lying to deceive people. He has, you know, probably there's a list of sort of a dozen ways that he uses lies. And in his case, it's part of his upbringing. You know, he has a father who encourages lying both sometimes to protect the father when the father's done something wrong and sometimes to uh, aggrandize himself as a child because the father likes to see the child following in his footsteps. So there's a kind of sociopathic father and maybe even grandfather. And uh, uh, we get a sense that by some other family standards, by most standards, uh, the great man has been mistreated as a child. Uh, but there also is some question about how much is sort of genetic and inborn. I mean, the Farber really wonders how you get this, this good at lying. It seems to be almost an innate talent. <laughs> I learned a great deal from the book about Trump, about psychiatry, about the people who have to work for a figure like the great man. What's your hope that people might take away from the book? Well, I mean, I hope that people get some comfort who agree with the premise of the book. You know, they think they were seeing something awful for those four years. They felt oppressed by it and that there's some reality that other people see things that way. And, and you know, there's sort of the question you asked about diagnosis. I mean, we, we don't really get a diagnosis, but we do get a sense that these traits go all the way through, that they're not just convenient politically that they uh, appear in, in private life, which is something we, you know, we can't know. Do we know whether Trump lies to his wife or not? But in this case, the, the traits are sort of uh, through and through. Uh, people have asked me, what if so, someone who likes Trump reads the book? And I don't expect that that is my readership, but I would say, you know, they would get a sense of how half the country felt under Trump, you know, that this really is an outrageous way to be and an oppressive way to be. It, you know, it was a very hard four years to get through. And I don't know whether you felt the uplift I was feeling probably in that November and December when I started to think about writing this book, but just the prospect of having a normal president and, you know, Biden looked as if what whatever he was had or was lacking, he was going to be a lot more normal than Trump. That seemed like an enormous relief. The country was, or at least the people that I related to, were ready for some boredom. Oh, let me put yeah. it that way. So, last question, did you have fun writing it? I imagine in today's publishing world, it wasn't easy to publish, even for a, a well-respected writer. So talk about your writing process and your publishing I, process. I, you know, I do. I'm sort of a tortured writer, but I would say relative to the projects I've undertaken, this was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, I did have anxiety about publishing it. My last book was with Forrest Strauss. I'm under contract with them for another book. They did not want this book. 
there are lots of reasons. I think these uh, traditional houses are very slow to get books out. I didn't know what would happen between their accepting a book and their publishing it. Uh, so, yeah, I think getting getting it published was difficult, but writing it was very compelling to me. I think you can, it shows in the book, I really started inhabiting these characters, not just the two we've talked about, but the, you know, the secondary ones like the the great man's wife and his, as you say, the bodyguards and uh, the lawyer, everyone. I tried to make everyone three-dimensional and they came very much alive to me. Okay, I'm going to steal a word from Dr. Henry Farber. Our time is up. <laughs> Today we've been talking about a satirical new novel about becoming the psychotherapist of a paranoid and narcissistic president. My guest has been eminent psychiatrist Dr. Peter D. Kramer. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his tech work on the show. Death of the Great Man has recently been published by Post Hill Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the psychology of a president very much like Donald Trump, one interview at a time. Bye for now. <laughs>